0: while you're turning to 1 John, in the back of your mind, I'd like for you to imagine that you got a phone call from your best friend, and he or she wants to go mountain biking. And so that kind of excites you, and so you said, yeah, for sure, let's do it. But here's the thing. You don't have a mountain bike, number one, and number two, you don't know the first thing about mountain biking. But you're a responsible young adult, so you have some money saved up, and so you decide you're going to go to the bike store and get yourself a mountain bike. As soon as you walk in, you're immediately overwhelmed by a plethora of different bicycles available for purchase. You see tall bikes with skinny tires. You see short bikes with wide handlebars and metal pegs. You see little pink bikes with ribbons and training wheels. And your confusion is written all over your face, so a store employee approaches you asking if you need help, and then they take you to the mountain bike section. Initially relieved of your anxiety, it's not long before you quickly find yourself overwhelmed yet once again. Some of the mountain bikes have what look like 10 or 12 different chains attached to them, Some of the frames are made out of steel. Some of the frames are made out of titanium. And for goodness sakes, the tires on these things look like they belong on a monster truck. Now, to the uninformed or to the uneducated shopper, this is simply a sea of crippling, needless variation. I mean, after all, you're just trying to hang out with your friend and ride some bikes one afternoon But to the bike enthusiast, this sea of options is, in fact, different specifications that should be carefully considered and compared. You see, specifications are unique attributes that distinguish one thing from another. Some specifications are important. That little pretty pink bike with the training wheels wouldn't last 15 minutes on the trails with your friend, but it would serve your three-year-old niece well in the driveway. Some specifications are less important. For instance, it's probably not wise to drop $5,000 on that titanium-framed mountain bike for an afternoon stroll around Lake Ray Roberts. But some specifications are critical. In January of 1986, thousands of people gathered around their TVs to watch NASA launch the Challenger space shuttle. Sadly, due to the unusually cold weather that day, some of the under-engineered O-rings on the spaceship froze, cracked, and eventually leaked, which resulted in engine fuel leaking internally inside of the spaceship. 73 seconds into the launch, Challenger exploded on national television killing all seven passengers inside. But Challenger's explosion prompted rigorous testing and development resulting in new standards and new specifications for aerospace materials. You see, some specifications are critical. And today, we're going to continue our study in 1 John. Before, in verses 1 through 4, Matt showed us a biblical view of Christ... And today, in verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 2, we're going to see a biblical view of sin. Our theme for today is just that a biblical view of sin. This is not going to be an academic view of sin, this is not going to be a national survey on sin. This is going to be what the Bible says about sin. And when it comes to understanding sin, the truth is the majority of people in the world today are like those undereducated shoppers staring at a wide variety of different options trying to understand what sin is. How will they know which view to pick? How will you know which view of sin is correct? Well, fortunately today, the beloved apostle will show us Three specifications for a biblical view of sin. First, God does not sin. Our verses say, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You may know that our children's ministry teaches a, uh, a little but very profound truth. And you may know the response. If I say the Bible is true, true that's exactly right. Four little words like a stick of dynamite that hold incredible meaning within them. You see, the Bible is inerrant, which means it's without error. The Bible is infallible, meaning it's actually incapable of housing error within it. And this is because the Bible is inspired. You see, the Holy Spirit purposed and guided every word of Scripture so that the original authors, including John here, their end product was freely written while simultaneously con- containing the fullness of all that God intended for it to have. 2 Peter one twenty one says, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, we approach every genre of Scripture understanding that it's inspired, whether it's historical narrative, whether it's gospel, apocalypse, genealogies, wisdom, what have you. They're all inspired, but John uniquely calls your attention to the authority of this first specification when he says, This is the message. The word can mean report, but this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. The biblical view of sin that John will build for us with its three distinct specifications is based on a message that he's received. Now, the foundational truths of infallibility and inspiration are sufficient to warrant our attention and trust. However, John wants to call our attention to just exactly where he got his information. By a quick show of hands, do any of you write book reports? Book reports? Research papers? Anybody write a research paper? Typically, in a research paper, you're going to find an outside source, a knowledgeable outside source to quote to back up your position. And when you do that, you cite your sources. Well, instead of John putting his source in a footnote, he cites it right up front. He's not trying to hide anything. And when it comes to sin, what source, if we look at the beginning of our verses, when it comes to sin, what source is John citing? Who gave him this message? God. That's right. He says, we received from him. Who's Jesus? Youth, the world will tell you many things about sin. The world will tell you that sin is necessary. Evil is the yin to God's yang. The world will tell you that sin isn't real. It's just something that humans have dealt with and before long will either evolve past it or technology will render it irrelevant. But human opinions on sin are irrelevant. Brace yourself because I'm going to tell you something. Your opinions on sin, apart from Scripture, are irrelevant. John's report on sin and therefore our understanding of sin must be based on the authority of Scripture and the testimony of Jesus himself. And John begins this report with a metaphor. When it comes to interpreting the Bible, we always do so in a straightforward manner. Some people hesitate to use the word literal because of metaphors, okay? For instance, when Jesus said he was the door, he didn't mean he was a three foot by seven foot sheet of plywood with hinges on one side. He meant that he is the entryway into a redeemed life with God. He's the entrance, Metaphors take complex ideas and make them easier for us to understand. So when John says God is light, he's using a metaphor. Contextually, I ask you this. This is a tough question. Contextually, what does light represent in our verses? Anyone take a stab at it? I'm sorry? Absolute, that's correct. Yes, God's moral character is what I wrote down. To understand sin biblically, we must begin with God's holiness, his absolute moral perfection. You see, John could have just said, hey guys, God doesn't sin, okay? But that doesn't come close to capturing God's holiness. To say that God doesn't sin, it just doesn't cut it. So how do we express, how is John going to express God's infinite holiness, his his infinite moral character, Well, apparently, he's going to use this metaphor. God is light. Now, no metaphor can perfectly capture the true nature of our infinite God. But what distinction in all of our known universe is greater than light and darkness? And John says that God has no darkness at all. Any view of sin that teaches you that God's holiness is anything less than the blinding summer noonday sun is wrong. It's heresy, it's unbiblical, and it's untrue. Given God's indescribable moral perfection, John now brings out the application for this. It's as if he's going to take the spotlight beaming from God's perfect moral character, and he's gonna take it and turn it and face it towards you and towards me. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And as we try to digest the report of God's moral purity, we come up against this conditional statement. A conditional statement is an if-then proposition. For instance, if I drive by Taco Bueno, I'm stopping and getting two-party burritos. Okay. If y'all don't do your schoolwork, you're not going to get passing grades. If we walk in darkness, then we cannot have fellowship with God. God is, I'm sorry, John is providing us with a test. What is the theme of 1 John? Does anyone know the theme of 1 John? Yes, in the back. Thank you very much. That's right. Tests of eternal life. Contextually, John is writing to a church dealing with false teaching. There were people in his day, just as there's people in our day, who say that you can have fellowship with God and also live unchecked sinful lives. But the word walk here is important. It's in the present tense, active voice, which means you intentionally engage in unrestrained sinfulness. It means you intentionally engage in unrestrained sinfulness. On this side of heaven, we will never be completely free of sin, but John's report says that those who profess Christ and simultaneously give themselves over to desires and deeds without hesitation. What does he say in verse six? What does he say about people who do that? In verse 6, people who say they know God but give themselves over to sin, They're they're liars. They're liars. And don't let this test pass you by. I want you to imagine in your mind, God, God is light. Picture him in all of his perfect holiness, his unimaginable, unapproachable, unmatched, perfect holiness, sinless perfection. You should feel the warmth of his light radiating in your mind. Now also, imagine the practice of your life. Do you walk in unashamed darkness? Not do you sin, mourn, and repent. Do you walk in darkness? If the answer is yes, you fail the test. A biblical view of sin is clear that anyone who practices sin doesn't have fellowship with God. The spotlight is on you. Where are the shadows? Is it revealing darkness within you? Do you have lust? Are you prideful, boasting? Do you steal? Do you have a lack of love for others? You see, darkness is the absence of light but we don't have to walk in darkness. John goes on, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And here a weakness with metaphor becomes apparent. Earlier John said God is light. Now God is in the light. I want to make sure that we're picking up on an implicit assumption in John's mind here within this report on sin. By professing to have fellowship with God, John assumes you've bowed the knee to the one who he said that he has seen, looked upon, touched, the eternal life manifested from the Father. Assuming you've bowed the knee to Jesus. Biblically, there's no way to walk in the light apart from repentance and faith. John's talking to a body of believers, so this assumption is in the background. Fellowship with God comes with walking in the light, and this makes the practice of our life the pursuit of putting off sin. Now, this won't be perfect. It's not in perfection, but in direction. Maybe you've heard, or maybe you've heard that the Christian life described as a long obedience in one direction. You see, sin will occur but are you walking in the light? If so, then there's fellowship and cleansing. And notice this, this is interesting. The assumption is that fellowship with God is inseparable from fellowship with other believers. There's no such thing as fellowship with God apart from walking in the light with other believers. Cleansing from sin and communing with God are part and parcel of the same package if you walk in the light then like john said back in verse three indeed you have fellowship with the father with the one who is without darkness god is perfect however man is not and this brings us to our second specification of a biblical view of sin man does sin If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Unbiblical views of sin leave people confused that thinking that they have fellowship with God, so here John becomes concerned with self-deception. Who does John say is self-deceived? Who does John say that is self-deceived? Look at verse 10. The one who says he has no sin. Before, John was combating a teaching that said, I have fellowship with God and I can practice sin. Now John corrects those who say, because I have fellowship with God, I no longer have sin. The first view says I can sin all the time and it doesn't matter. This view says I'm not worried about sin because now I don't have any. In fact, if you're familiar with the history of the United States or or church history in the 1700s, then maybe you've heard of the Wesley brothers. John and Charles Wesley, while attending Oxford, created a group, started a small group that wanted to take the Bible seriously and apply what it says. And that's a great thing. People on campus called it the Holy Group, disparagingly, but they called it Methodism. These men would eventually come to America and play a tremendous role in evangelism and revival. However, they would also begin teaching and developing a doctrine known as Christian perfectionism. Now, depending on your sources, it can be difficult to pinpoint their intention with this doctrine, but I want to read you two snips from Charles' own writing. While speaking on this doctrine of Christian perfectionism, Charles says, Perfectionism is deliverance from inward as well as from outward sin. And also, a Christian is so far perfect as not to commit sin. As many understand it, their thought was that the Greek word for perfect doesn't always mean flawless. And that's true. It can mean mature. That's absolutely true. But they took that and said, well, therefore, we can teach that a Christian eventually can mature to the point of being free of sin completely in his or her life. And interestingly, this is very similar to the doctrine that John was refuting originally in this letter when he wrote. You see, Gnosticism, the Gnostics believed that the flesh was bad and the spirit is good, and the more you were like the spirit, the less sinful you were. And ideally, you would become so spiritual that you would transcend your natural, physical being. Humans love to believe that we can progress beyond sin in this life. For instance, take Buddhism. Buddhism doesn't teach the concept of sin. It te- it's all about suffering and escaping suffering in this life. But because they believe existing is suffering, the end goal of Buddhism is nirvana, which is a state of such elevated consciousness that you literally cease to exist. Sinful man believes he can get to a point where he doesn't sin anymore. We could say the same thing about Hinduism and the Brahmin class being one step away from their version of heaven. But John says if we believe this mess about being sinless in this life, we're deceiving ourselves. Also, Paul was confident that our sanctification wouldn't be complete until Christ's return. Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul was confident that he himself hadn't obtained this Christian perfectionism. Later in Philippians 3.12 and 13, he said, Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. A biblical view of sin specifically teaches that man, while on this side of heaven, he will never cease from sinning in this life. Instead, our sanctification, our growth in holiness is progressive. Progressive. Telling yourself otherwise is simply self-deception. Look at verse 10. John also wants to be clear that man does in fact sin. He does sin. In verse 10, he says, saying you've never sinned is calling God a liar. We know this. Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7.20, indeed there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. 1 Corinthians 15.22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. All men die Because all men sin. To assume, profess, or believe that you don't sin at best is unbiblical. Worse, John says that you're calling God a liar. But as John says, if we confess our sins, he, God, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A biblical view of sin teaches that we sin. Unlike God, who is all light, morally perfect, you and I have darkness. A biblical view of sin teaches Even after we receive salvation in this life, even though we don't make a practice of walking in sin and in darkness, we will continue to sin. We know that because John is sharing this message, this report with the church, a body of believers. The true believer never gets past sin in this life. We don't progress past it. Psalm 32, 5, David says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to you, to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You have a better chance of being taken like Enoch was than attaining this supposed Christian perfectionism. Youth, I look at your vibrant young faces and I know Inwardly, you have the same temptations. You struggle with the same sin that I do because our father is Adam. But if you're in Christ, your flesh and God's spirit will be in opposition to one another. Dealing with sin is something we will practice in Christ until we die or the Lord takes us home. And Christians deal with ongoing sin by confessing them to the Lord. Again, we consider to pause this test of the faith. So I ask, do you have unconfessed sin that you need to deal with? Biblically speaking, your sin won't be swept under the rug and you'll never mature past it. The only biblical solution for sin is this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lastly, let's look at John's third specification for a biblical view of sin, and that is Jesus saves from sin. We're now in chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Once more, we're reminded that this letter is not written to the general population. When it comes to a biblical view of sin, John's source is God, and his audience is God's people. And listen to how tenderly, how affectionately he addresses the people of God. He calls them my little children. This is not to butter them up. John's pretty straightforward on sin, he's not trying to sugarcoat anything. He says, God doesn't have sin, we do. But John also realizes he's talking with fellow humans. He's not writing an encyclopedia article to be posted online or something. He's teaching, guiding, loving, and shepherding people. And with that said, we too will do well to model John's tone when we address brothers and sisters in Christ about their sin. We can undoubtedly stand firm on the authority of Scripture, on God's Word when it comes to discussing sin But we should balance our conversations with the same gentleness and kindness that John does here. I want you to look at verse 1. In verse 1, what benefit does the believer have if he sins? John tells us that we have something in verse 1. What's the believer's benefit? we have an advocate with the father an advocate an advocate is one who comes to the aid of another and oftentimes it's it's often described as a lawyer who comes to the aid of one who's in legal trouble but contextually we know that's not true john's talking to the redeemed people who already have been justified by the shed blood of christ therefore they don't need a lawyer also, we commonly recognize the Holy Spirit as being our advocate, and he, he is. But interestingly, if you read Jesus in the upper room discourse, Jesus identifies the spirit whom he's going to ask the Father to send. He identifies him as another advocate. It's the same word that we have here. Jesus said he's sending another advocate besides himself. You see, the Christian has a helper who dwells inside of them, the Spirit, but also an advocate in heaven, which is Christ. The advocacy that John mentions here is not salvific. It's not as if when we sin, Jesus goes to the Father to remind him of your salvation. Rather, this refers to Jesus' heavenly function, what he's currently doing in heaven. Jesus intercedes and prays for us when we sin. Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Hebrews 7 speaks of a similar situation. Jesus' advocacy for us is a heavenly intercession. His advocacy is a continual, prayerful presence before the throne of God. I want you to imagine this. When you have sin that is difficult to confess, Christ prays for you. The New Testament tells us to pray for one another. And when we do that, we're in fact interceding for one another. But let it be known, there is but one mediator between God and man. Pay close attention. John is destroying any credibility in relying on Mary, patron saints, or your deceased uncle to try to bend God's ear for you. Again, truth balanced with love, biblically speaking, There's no value in praying to anyone besides our advocate. There is no other advocate. There's no other person who is righteous enough to sit before the throne of God and continually pray for you. And on top of that, there's no other person who has done what Christ has done for the whole world. No one else has become a propitiation. You know, at home... Uh, my wife and I use a catechism to teach and train our children about God and about the Bible, and it's, uh, it, it has some big words in it at times. One of the questions in the catechism that we're currently doing is, how can we be saved? The answer is, only by faith in Jesus Christ and in his substitutionary atoning death on the cross. And that can be quite difficult for my six and my four-year-old to say. And it's cute to watch them struggle to say it. But they don't really understand it. And they much less can even say it. However, if we're honest, there's big words that even you and I can struggle to understand. And propitiation can be one of those words. Some translations render this word as expiation. But that's, in fact, a terribly inaccurate translation. You see, expiation is commonly understood in ancient Near East writings like like the Bible as an offering or a sacrifice made to a God who's usually capricious in an effort to appease his wrath for the time being. Now, capricious means that you are given to mood swings, And the idea with expiation is is that you don't know what side of the bed God woke up on that day. And so, to cover yourself, you're going to throw a Hail Mary sacrifice in hopes. And if nothing bad happens, then you think maybe the expiation went through. But if something bad happens, then you assume that God didn't accept it. Expiation is religious superstition. You know, when I was in, in high school, I played baseball. And if you play baseball, you probably know it's a pretty superstitious sport. You see, if we won a game, I wouldn't wash my socks. I wouldn't wash my socks. And the next game, I would wear those same stinky, unwashed socks, once again, hoping it would result in another win. And sometimes this went on game after game after game after game. My freshman year, we made it all the way to state. So there was several games there where I'm not washing my socks. Now, this may just be harmless hygiene, or is it expiation? You see, the trouble is when we become spiritually superstitious, offering our dirty socks as expiation to a holy God, thinking that our attempts will gain favor with him, Isaiah 64, verses 5 and 6 say, for all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. God doesn't have sin. We do have sin. And when you sin, do you fear God is angry with you, so you make some kind of offer, you offer him some kind of righteous deed in an attempt to turn his wrath from you, some sort of filthy rag that you're hoping he will accept, well, that doesn't square with a biblical view of sin. And based on John's report, God himself says that won't work. God loves us far more than that. He's not a capricious God who we don't know how to appease. God has given us His Word. Propitiation is the sure way of salvation, it's an effective way of salvation. There is no spiritual superstition with propitiation. And we know, based on the authority of Scripture, how to be restored to God. God Himself has provided this propitiation. John 3:16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son God has made salvation clear He himself that's Jesus he himself is the propitiation for our sins The Greek here, it's hard to see, but the Greek places a strong emphasis on he himself. It's highlighting the exclusivity of Christ in salvation. Religious superstition can't remove your sin, nor can it restore you to God. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he himself is the propitiation for your sins. And Jesus knew this, John 14:6. He said, "I'm the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me." Youth, don't trust yourself to be able to appease God's wrath. Stop offering him your filthy rags. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, I hope you've picked up on this because the momentum, John's momentum has been increasing, okay? So he starts off, God is morally perfect, and we are not. And if we say that we know him but walk in darkness, we're lying. He picks up a little bit. If we confess our sins, God's faithful to cleanse. And when we sin, we have an advocate. That advocate is Jesus And John has been teaching us about sin, driving us, if you will, around the theological NASCAR 500 each lap, getting increasingly faster and a little bit more information. But now on John's final lap here that we're coming to, he turns on the boosters to finalize this biblical understanding of sin. He says, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. The whole world. Jesus is God's propitiation for the whole world. A minute ago, we saw in John 3.16, God sent Jesus to provide a sure means of salvation, but really listen to the end of the verse that I didn't read to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God's offer of salvation isn't reserved only for Israel. One of the amazing things of the new covenant is that it's available to anyone around the entire world, it's available to whosoever believes there isn't a person who, if they repent and believe in Jesus, will be denied the benefits of this propitiation, of this advocacy of Christ. Often, you'll hear disparaging comments about God's sovereignty and salvation, or what can be called definite atonement. Those who deny such Biblical truths often try to use verses like, we're looking at here, 1 John 2, 2, to support their argument. They'll say, you see, God loves everyone. Jesus died for the whole world. And we say, amen. You're absolutely right. Jesus' offer of salvation to the whole world, it's called a universal call. A universal call. I have a slide and I hope you'll listen here as I read. I want to read to you what Roger Nicole says on God's sincere offer of salvation to all. What is the essential prerequisite for a sincere offer? Simply this, that if the terms of the offer be observed, that which is offered actually be granted. In connection with the gospel offer, the terms are that a person should repent, and believe Roger says whenever that occurs salvation is actually conferred there's not a single case on the record in the whole history of mankind where a person came to God in repentance and faith and was refused salvation this our Lord specifically promised whoever comes to me I will never drive away if the question be raised who's going to come The answer is all that the Father gives me will come to me. Far from undermining the sincere offer of the gospel, the doctrine of definite atonement undergirds the call. It provides a real rather than a hypothetical salvation as that which is offered. The propitiation sin that Jesus provided is a full pardon, a full forgiveness that God stands ready to grant to anyone in the whole world from any nation, man, woman, free, slave, Jew, Gentile, young, old, youth, this offer stands for you. God doesn't have sin. We, youth, we do have sin. Jesus stands ready to forgive and to cleanse you of sin if you will repent and believe. So in closing, how, how do we apply what it is that we've learned about this biblical view of sin? Well, I think first, we worship God as holy. If you're in Christ, you have unhindered Direct access to the Father, and He desires for you to pray to Him. But do you ever find yourself talking to God as if you're talking to your little brother or your little sister? We never want to shy away from God or feel ashamed to come before Him, but do you approach Him with the respect that He deserves? God is light, there is no darkness in Him. Secondly, we repent from sin. If we're in Christ, we don't walk in darkness. Are there sins in your life that characterize you? Let me put it this way. Let's say that we could monitor your life, right? Let's say we could monitor your life for, I don't know, however many months, six, eight months, a year, two years, I don't care, Pick, pick a time frame. If we could monitor your life, would we look at your life and say, that guy is constantly lying every day he's a liar or would we say she consistently watches things that the bible is clear we shouldn't be watching consistently again not isolated struggles to get put off renewal is sought but would we see you walking in darkness if so repent of those sins lastly Final application is turn to Christ for forgiveness. If you haven't turned away from your sin and pursued a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith, you can do that today. If you have questions about what repentance and faith looks like, I promise you, I can assure you that if you grab a leader, they'll be excited to talk to you about what faith in Christ looks like. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do love you and we're so thankful that you've given us your word. And through your spirit, John has taught us the distinct biblical view of sin which differs so vastly from what the world tells us, God. You're holy. There's none like you. You're perfect in righteousness, holiness, goodness. You far exceed where we are. We we can't even imagine your holiness. Father, we have fallen. We have chosen to go astray and pursue our own way. We're not like you. You've made us in your image, but we have, we've turned from you. That's clear. And that applies to all of mankind. But Father, in your kindness and your goodness, you came to earth as man. You took on this flesh that we struggle with daily. You took it upon yourself. You, you, you wrapped yourself in flesh. You tabernacled among us. But Father, Jesus never sinned. Your propitiation was perfect and you've made clear in your word the way of salvation. Father, make our hearts tender to these truths. Help us to see what a biblical view of sin is and to live in light of that. Pray that you'd be glorified tonight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.